Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Guys, welcome back. We're really scatterbrained this afternoon, it's evening, week. morning. Who knows? <laughs> what day is it? What day it is. <laughs> I don't know anymore. I really yeah. don't. Well, you hear Jennifer, we, Jen, actually, who we had. Okay. This is our part two with our go-to expert on everything related in the field of educational therapy, right? Like that's just been a topic that we've wanted to delve in with, that we've had a couple people on. But Jen, thank you for coming back on so you can kind of explain more of what you've learned about this area. Sure, absolutely. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am. Um, I know you've already had some pretty dynamo ed therapy ed therapists on your on your podcast already. I think you interviewed Dr. Franklin. And yeah, the lovely ladies that learn smarter, and you know, so your audience has already kind of spoken to it pretty extensively about the specifics of their approach, and of course, executive functioning support and and all that. So my hope is to you know kind of give a bit more overarching general information about educational therapy as a whole, maybe a little snippet the history a little less on that though (laughs) (laughs) no I think it's always good to see where you came from right to see where you're going and I think that's why we were so attracted to the idea of having you back on because yes even though we've had so many different people in different levels right we've even had Janice Royal on who kind of takes over the yeah the graduate or the college kind of transition of ed therapy and what it kind of looks like I think it's important for people to kind of understand generally there's a lot of different people that have different definitions of it. So I guess that's where I would want to start. Like, what is your definition of educational therapy? Or what have you learned that a lot of people think? Yeah, I'll give you my definition. And then I'll give you the larger associations definition. They're similar. (laughs) And they're similar to your other guests, too. So, you know, we at least everyone that you've interviewed, we all seem to be kindred spirits. So that's nice that there's that connected vocab, like connected language Mm -hmm. between us. So my definition is... You know, educational therapists help individuals with learning disabilities and exceptionalities of all kinds overall just feel fall in love with learning again, you know, by teaching how they learn uniquely, by supporting them with skill-based strategies and tools to, as you know, we talked about in my last last time we, we chatted was like level the learning field. Yes. Right? So educational therapists help students demystify and celebrate their neurodiversity and, you know, hopefully help support them thrive as independent learners. So the, the association would say, let's see, I actually took notes just Yay. to make sure I don't misquote. <laughs> I am not representing the association, nor am I, you know, a, a leadership as part of them. I'm just a happy to be a member of them. But their definition says, educational therapy is the practice of providing personalized remedial instruction to children and adults with learning challenges with the ultimate goal of educational therapy to foster development of self-confidence, independent individuals who feel positively about themselves and their potential as lifelong learners. And then they go you know, even further into saying that educational therapists have extensive training and experience in administering academic plans and implementing strategies to address challenges with reading, writing, spelling, math organization, study skills, et cetera. 
And a vital role of the educational therapist is to serve as a case manager, which sometimes we get called to do. You know, not all of us, you know, depending, especially if the kiddo's in the public sector, sometimes there's other individuals that are really overseeing that. But quite often the educational therapist kind of becomes the umbrella, kind of working in collaboration with families and teachers and other specialists on that child's team and usually kind of working with them for many more than just a few months or a school year. So I do want to specify that educational therapists, because it said in their definition, it talked about administering academic assessments. ETs do not actually diagnose. So we don't do the kind of assessments like a neuropsych would do. That's entirely inappropriate for (laughs) our professional level. We are, however, formally trained, at least those who have gone through, you know, an educational therapy training program are formally trained on how to read and evaluate kind of those assessments, whether they're kind of the Woodcock-Johnson or the WISC or, you know, a whole battery of different um, types of assessments depending on the diagnosis. And so ETs are able to, are trained specifically in how to read those and how to translate those specifically to the parents and other members on their team. But, you know, the types of assessments we provide are more together just information to design proper remediation programs than it is to specifically say, you know, your child has a diagnosis of X, Y, or Z. The only caveat is some ETs are also neuropsychs. Whoa, (laughs) okay, yeah, yeah. You have, you know, there's a, we'll talk about this too, but there's a wide variety in background of ETs. And so, you know, if you happen to have one that's at the intersection of both, then, you know, they may be the type of ET that also does the formal evaluation. Um, But that's not something that's uniquely true for all ETs. Sure. So we talk a lot about titles and labels on this podcast just in general. And in Mm -hmm. some ways, that's a good thing. In other ways, that's problematic. The label of educational therapist, obviously, I think we've talked about is sometimes misused. We do know certain school districts title positions as educational therapists that may not mean that the person who fills that position is actually an educational therapist there in some school districts that I am thinking of specific are it's the title being used for a special education or an RSP teacher. So obviously a lot of what you said in the description seems like what an RSP teacher or a special ed teacher could do or may do, but there are circumstances where an ed therapist that's different from this person is needed. Can you kind of talk a little bit about the difference between how you guys work and how like maybe an RSP teacher who's labeled an ed therapist might operate? Absolutely. I mean, and I, the kind of misunderstanding or blurred lines is totally understandable because, you know, the, the whole concept of a therapeutic teacher is something that's been around for decades. I mean, even with our littles, like Montessori was considered, you know, a therapeutic teacher. And it's a global definition to kind of have a professional who's at that intersection of both academic instruction and also paying attention to the social, emotional, behavioral, et cetera, et cetera. So I think 1979 is when the Association for Education therapist was formed and they really started to anchor what the you know what the expectation and definition of specifically the title educational therapy means and you know they provide leadership and certification and training and you know all kinds of lovely support but they are the kind of the ones that are specifically turning that into a universal definition 
And so there are, pardon me, absolutely dynamo educators and professionals out there who have, you know, decades of experience in special education, Mm -hmm. who, you know, have served in resource for the majority of their careers, who've, you know, been actively involved in special day programs, you name it. And they are undoubtedly very qualified to work with a lot of, you know, to work with individuals with special needs. That's their whole training and life experience, but they're not necessarily considered educational therapists as it's defined today. And so with something that is still evolving, it makes sense that there would be confusion. And those people actually may be dynamo educational therapists. In fact, if you're listening, I hope that you go to AUT's website and you inquire into kind of membership because given your level of experience and educational background, you actually may jump to kind of a higher tier of educational therapist very quickly. And it wouldn't take as much for you to get certified and then again, be on the same kind of same page as everyone else who's mm-hmm. using that. But unless you've been kind of awarded this, this title from AET, the association, you know, it's not technically (laughs) an educational therapist. And I mean, the reason to go with the association is like you said, so everybody's on the same page, you're sharing resources, because the key component, I think, for educational therapists is the remediation component. And that's oftentimes what Amanda and I are advocating for our clients. We have the law, especially in the Ninth Circuit here in California as well, that remediation should be part of a child's IE. You're trying to close the gap. It's not just about kind of shifting them from grade to grade. There should be a focus on remediation if the child, you know, if all the assessments line up, you know, the IQ, the potential for shows that there's that severe discrepancy and there shouldn't be, how are we going to close that gap? While completely understanding that there are disabilities that are affecting the child, but that, hey, if they have the capability, what are we doing to to close the gap? So I think that that's what's important. We're not saying that all educational therapists that have been deemed that by a district need to go and join the association. What we're just trying to say is that in terms of trying to get everybody on the same page with the resources for remediation, with the programming that is appropriate for all different types of children, whether they're neurodiverse or neurotypical, I think that would be fabulous because, you know, you won't get so many cooks in the kitchen, if you will. Absolutely. And I mean, besides kind of the, you know, title aside, the amount of training that you get with a program that's for educational therapy, you know, they go really in depth into a lot of these different assessments that, you know, if you have been serving one particular age group or one particular domain wise, you know, you may not necessarily have this kind of holistic understanding of where they're coming from their previous grades to where they're headed to if they want to be college bound Mm -hmm. to if they've got a processing situation and not just like an actual academic um, learning disability of some kind, you know, so the process of being a formally trained ET is actually broadening your scope and understanding so that you can zoom out from, you know, preschool through college and kind of see the landscape and then pop back into the specific moment. And so, you know, I'd say that's also another difference, focusing specifically on the skills-based remediation, not necessarily just kind of teaching academic content is right. another way that educational therapists are different than say, you know, another educational specialist or tutor or things of that nature. So the differences are nuanced in some cases and in other cases are actually quite broad. And so, you know, some educational therapists will hone in on a particular demographic. You know, they may specifically say, I only work with adults with a diagnosis of ADHD, or they may stay more generalist, but they're all trained if they've gone through an a, you know, an AET approved program, they are all trained to have that broader scope and the ability to also go in depth. 
I think that's an important distinction because when we look at a lot of times when we're developing, even in schools like IEP goals, oftentimes I get the, you know, there's a standard goal that, you know, is like minimal amount of progress within a year and the parents or, you know, us are, you know, asking, you know, is that as far as go? It seems like, you know, the need is greater. The gap is wider. Can we go deeper? Can we do more in a year? And often we get faced with the answer of, well, this is all that we are capable of. Or if they say, okay, yes, maybe we can do more, it results in more time rather than better intervention. So instead of having 40 minutes a day with the RSP teacher or ed specialist, the child is now having 80 minutes a day or more in some cases where the child is now being taken out of the general education class a lot more because they say, well, the only way we can do this remediation is just more time. But that's where they're looking at cramming more content rather than the actual skill base, what you're talking about. And so I think it would really benefit if, if a lot more of these, these teachers were in this position to be able to really provide the distinct different kind of remediation that you're talking about, because it's not going to just benefit the kid now. We're not going to be spending as much time doing it. And also, I'd imagine it's going to impact them for a longer, right? We're not just learning this set of math skills, you know, these formulas, right? We're learning foundational skills. They're going to help in any stage. Absolutely. And I mean, if they themselves are not, you know, this is just not their jam or they're not interested or whatever the deal, that's okay. You know, I would say for, for that and for those districts, you know, who don't necessarily want to bring in a you know, certified educational therapist on board, you know, be open to collaborating. You know, I think there's often kind of a, unfortunately, a, a disconnect. People feel like, oh, well, an outside, you know, professional from kind of the private sector is going to try to step on our toes and tell us what to do and, you know, what we're not doing and da da da. And then the reality is, is we all have the same objective. We all want what's best for that child and to see them thrive and to see them love learning and to see them be autonomous, you know, self-confident people. And so, you know, by no fault to some of these teachers' own, I mean, they've got multiple students. They have requirements from the district. They have requirements from the state. I mean, I was in the public sector and the private sector as a classroom teacher for many years. So, you know, I personally understand it's a lot. And no matter how dynamo you are and how much you differentiate and how much, you know, extra prep time time you're given and whatnot, it's just sometimes it's a bit too much for one person. And so, you know, ETs are also there to be partners, to link arms with, you know, the team members at school sites and to help support them so they can support all their kids. You know, it's very much we're all a team. Absolutely. And I think most of the time it feels like us versus them mentality, especially with some of the, the private entities like yourselves, where, you know, you were in the public sector and you were like, okay, I can't change this right now. I'm going to see if I can, you know, follow my passion of it and kind of create a safe, fun environment where I can really hold parents' hands and help them through. And that's what we fell in love with when we first learned about your organization and then when we had you on. But I think, you know, having that mentality and school districts often have this mentality where like, well, you just don't like us, you know? And it's just like, that's not it at all. We know that you're inundated. Like Amanda and I are the first to say that we would like for the outside providers to work with the school district team because you are so inundated with everything. And as teachers, you are on the front lines. We know that you have 30 other kids that you have 
have to deal with. But unfortunately, yeah, we run into that a lot. So I'm glad that you said that. You know, we're all here for one reason, for the child. And you need the support. And if it's different from the way that you're doing it in the classroom, fine, let's have a discussion about it. But I often see the outside providers just being shut down, right? I mean, it's just like, well, we don't do that. This is school. And it's just like, okay, you're talking to an ET that like was either a teacher previously (laughs) or is currently one. So it's like, if we know how to do it in the classroom, like, why don't you want to do it? So that was an interesting kind of take that you brought that kind of made me go on that rant. Oh, and I think too, I mean, the responsibility is also on the educational therapist. And, you know, we're human. We all have our egos that sometimes get (laughs) triggered a little bit. I'd like to pretend I don't have one, you know, and usually I think I do a pretty good job of keeping it in check. But, you know, like I said, we're human. And so, you know, it's our responsibility too as ETs to recognize, respect the amount of work and time and experience that these teachers have with this particular child. I mean, they are with them far more than this ET is ever going to be. And much like how, you know, no one knows their child better than the parents, you know, for the academic learning component, you know, these teachers and these professionals are really kind of, like you said, on the front lines. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we're the guest. Mm-hmm. We're not the mm-hmm. one like swooping in with like, I have all right. the answers and right, I'm right. the hero and da, da, da. It's like, no, no, I'm just another person, part of the team. I have the benefit of being kind of an objective eye that maybe I might provide some suggestions for you to consider mm-hmm. that you wouldn't have seen having, you know, kind of been in it day to day. But, mm-hmm. you know, this is, you know, like, let's be clear, we all are on the same page and nobody right. is, you know, necessarily, I mean, I'm sure there's a person who's the lead, right? Right. You know, let's keep it all in check. So, you know, the responsibility to collaborate and to be open to that is very much both a two-way street. Absolutely. So one thing that we've been talking about a lot, just given the circumstances that we're under with this pandemic, is access to services. Obviously, right now, access to services has become a topic that everyone's talking about, right? Because we're not physically in school, so how are all these students going to access it? But it also bears relevance to typical times, you know, even when we're not in a pandemic, that there are students that have difficulty accessing because they're either in a rural part of the country where aren't any therapists for two hours of a drive, right? Or there's a an issue with a language barrier or socioeconomic status. They, you know, so we've been kind of trying to talk to all of our guests about access and about how maybe if this pandemic has made you think or change the way you provide services to kind of consider this access issue. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you're you're kind of asking that of your guests, because I think the more that we can think creatively about how to make all information accessible to all different types of learners and socioeconomic backgrounds, and you name it, the, the better. You know, it's a shame that maybe a pandemic is the one that lit the match, but I am grateful that, you know, we'll at least be you know, collectively getting to a very creative point at the end of this. So, you know, Teach, Play, Learn, we we have always had an online component to what we do. We've integrated a number of different, you know, for many years now, and we've had document cameras, we've been using kind of the, the latest platforms, which, you know, now everybody knows quite well with Zoom, but, you know, train all our teachers on how to be able to do what we do in person as much as possible, you know, online sessions as well. So that was something that kind of just was a natural addition. We're constantly thinking of how we can do it better, how we can make it more interactive, how we can, you know, it's not just 
one person talking to another person. And sure, you can see each other and you can pull up the PDF and share a screen, but how do you really make it more engaging? And so we'll weave certain tech tools like Kahoot and make things more game-based or, you know, things where the students are interacting beyond just kind of verbally, you know, giving them nonverbal ways to show their understanding and communicate kind of what they're learning. We are also very adamant about taking movement breaks <laughs> and giving the brain a, a chance it's important. to get the blood circulating. Yeah, for sure. It's a lot for these kids to be sitting in front of a screen, especially if you're a little one. It's very challenging. And so that's one, one way, right? But that's a way that I think a lot of people are kind of latching onto now and creating backup plans for, which I think is good. You know, other things that we're personally exploring is creating more digital content. So videos with live Q&A, with, you know, more project-based type of approach that other the families and students can interact with. And so that way we can come in from more of the tailored um, service support versus kind of paying for that billable hour to get the general like top layer questions or information. Right. So that's something that we can either give away for free or a seriously reduced cost, which makes it, you know, you get your initial answers, your initial footing without having to pay a lot of money for that. I think that's something that addresses accessibility. We're often looking into how do we make sure we include closed captioning? How do we change the different sizes and colors and things to make sure that they're accessible to learners with all different kinds of profiles, you know, because the <laughs> regular text on a shared screen may not necessarily work for everyone. So right. also trying to think from that perspective, we ask our students and get their feedback of what works, what doesn't work, um, why, you know, I think listening is one of the biggest ways we can really try to create something unique and different that solves this problem or solves the challenge of accessibility in, in areas. Those without an internet connection or a computer, that's a little bit more challenging. And I think that's something that I think a lot of educators right now, we're all in the same boat of, hmm, how do we do if tech is not part of the equation? And, yeah. um, you know, packets and worksheets and things can only go so far. And especially if you're talking about an individual with special needs, that's not necessarily going to be the most effective or best use of their time. And so I think in that case, you know, I don't, I can't pretend I have all the answers, but I would say that, you know, collaboration really becomes the key is finding people that are in that individual's world, whether it's the guardians, whether it's family, whether it's even big sister, big brother, whether it's, you know, the local library has, you know, certain tutoring support, whatever the deal, and try to link arms and see who you can collaborate with to be your, you know, your in-person person. Right. Mm -hmm. And then see how you can work most effectively together. So in that case, the risk, of course, is a little bit of a game of telephone. But depending on the individuals that, that you find, you know, I think it could be quite effective. I and mean, we collaborate all the time with professionals we've never met, right. with families we've never seen, you know, and there's a certain kind of kismet philosophical tie or heart thread that is that is aligned with kind of each person we link arms with. So I think that helps already get, you know, make sure we're all on the same page. But it can be done. It just takes more work because you have to kind of prep for working with this other person in a team type approach and then working with the individual. And this the team is not necessarily your grade level team that you've already built rapport with the school year. So it's just different, you know, but I would love, I'm going to go through and listen to some of your other recordings. I'm curious what your other guests have said because I'm all ears for other creative solutions. What I was going to say is that even though it may appear to be like it's more work, 
I think that at the forefront, it may be like that. I think that as everybody is getting used to that new technology, I think that that's when it could be more work. But I think at the same time that it just like anything, that routine will be set and it won't be as challenging as I think some people may be seeing it. And so even though you had said that, I just, I in my mind, like, Everybody at least is experiencing the same thing at the same time, but you wouldn't have been able to flourish within your own personal business if it was that hard at that level the whole time. So I think that that's what is going to be unique about us being thrust into this area right now. And I think that it's easy for a lot of people to just give up. And that's why we were really excited for you to kind of give that background and how people now are using their resources and their talent to try to get everybody on that same page. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're seeing also the use of just more create, like you think, okay, I'm going to replace my classroom instruction with a Zoom because that mm-hmm. feels very kind of synonymous. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm seeing educators, you know, use other channels like Slack, for example, to have, you know, kind of ongoing conversations and share pictures and links and things. And it feels very kind of organically conversational, which works with a lot of students. I wouldn't say with the littles per se, but maybe, you know, that's not something that people I think would notorious like right off the cuff be like, oh, I could use this tool for that. You know, yeah. Crowdcast is another one that I think is an interesting tech video, you know, kind of conf- conferencing and broadcasting system. They have polls just like, you know, Zoom does, but they also are able to kind of bookmark the video with questions along the way. So students need to kind of revisit parts of the lecture that they missed. That's kind of a, a neat organizational tool that yeah, they've built automatically right. into their platform. Um, I will say, too, we've done for kids who part of our services actually is we have a lending library of resources. So parents who don't have a certain curriculum or a document camera, for example, they can check one out from our library. and We mail it to them for however long they're with us, and then they mail it back when they're done. But for educators out there who, or their students who don't have access to document cameras, you can actually make one just using your smartphone or your iPad. Mm. I think a lot of people don't necessarily think, oh, this could be just as effective as my Elmo in my classroom, but it can. And most people have a smartphone these days. So that's something that certainly can help with accessibility. I'm happy to include a little link or how-to situation for your audience if you want. I don't want to take up your time. No, that would be great. I mean, that's the whole point, right? Is to share the resources and try to make this transition as easy as possible. We're not asking to reinvent the wheel here. There's plenty of people that have been doing distant and virtual learning for quite Mm -hmm. some time. Yeah, I'm so happy that you kind of were able to talk more to that and like the role of the educational therapist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not perfect. And it's still something that's very much being, you know, evolved and worked on and um, reinvented. But it is certainly more in the day to day than you know, technology is more in the day-to-day than it historically has been. And, you know, it works for some, it doesn't work as well for others, but there's lots of potential there. Yeah, I think we're definitely seeing a trend and a move towards not just for this temporary time period, but, you know, how we can be utilizing technology to our advantage, right? I think technology in some ways gets a bad rap, especially maybe from the older generations that see media being used as more of entertainment purposes, mm-hmm. technology being used for entertainment, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all of that, right? It's for many people, it is entertainment. And that's really all that they use, right? How many apps 
do most people have on their phone that are more for entertainment than efficiency or being organized, right? But I think we're seeing now that there's technology that can be used in so many different ways that, you know, the move, you know, once we are kind of past this time, I think we're going to see the move towards utilizing it more and taking advantage of the technology we have for even more. Like, I think this is going to show how many problems we have during this time is going to spur like, oh, this is a solution. I'm going to think of the solution for that. You know, a kind of a new birth of innovation, I think, which is great. And I think it's needed. Absolutely. Especially in education. For sure. When you were saying Instagram and all that made me think about TikTok. I don't know if you guys have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's surprisingly addictive. I'm embarrassed to say. My sister's initially introduced it to me and it's been kind of part of my brain break every now and then since. But, you know, there's a lot of teachers and, you know, consultants and things who have channels on there. Yeah. We're very give you know bite-sized information directly to the students right you know and they're enjoying it you know it's yeah. evidenced by hundreds of thousands of likes and, right you know right and shares it, and engagement forum right, right. and right. you know but i know teachers who are doing the same thing with snapchat i know teachers doing the same thing with instagram live you know it's all these platforms are i mean they're designed to be social so right. it's not surprising but it is yeah. kind of it's very inspiring to see some of these teachers and what they're creating and like all the songs that they're creating too so that kids uh-huh. can practice things outside the source of creativity online. yeah you know, i mean glad strategies and things like that's song and education that's hand in hand for probably centuries right but you know i'm I, like i saw a cover of a billy eilish song the other day for fourth grade math facts and i was like brilliant this is so fun right it, right you know? yeah make so. it fun well so jen how can people reach out to you if they have additional questions i know you are in the middle of getting certified as an educational therapist right yes so you know i have served as an academic coach for many years helping students with you know executive functioning skills and you know i've served in special education as well when i was a classroom teacher and so you know much like you know my there are echoes of kind of being an educational therapist in my world before i even knew it it really existed and then i was like wait we have this very holistic approach that's very you know, kind of looks at all levels and all grade level and whole family and academic and creative. And people, and all of a sudden I discovered educational therapy and I was like, oh, so like, this is a thing. Cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. I didn't know that, you know. So I am still on my professional certification journey. I will be finished with that in the fall. And then we'll have my what's called an ET professional certification, which is basically 1500 hours of direct service completed under a board certified educational therapist. You know, I've gone through the formal certification training that by an AET approved program, et cetera, et cetera. And then I hope to also, much like some of your other guests, pursue the board certification as well. So awesome. if if people have questions about the process or, you know, what it's like in the program, I yeah. can speak to what I'm in. I'm in it now. Yeah, so happy awesome. to give you my real life experience. <laughs> um, feel free to email me directly at jennifer at teachplaylearn.com or, you know, visit our website and use the contact page. Just teachplaylearn.com. Thank you, Jennifer. Awesome. Thanks for coming Thank on you. again. We'll probably have a part three once you're certified. <laughs> All the new toys and techniques that you'll have learned, you can come and share them with us again in our listeners. Lovely. It would be a pleasure. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.